The wealth management industry is changing, technology is rapidly evolving, and global pandemics can change our business model in the blink of an eye. In this series, we look forward and answer this question. What do wealth management firms need to be doing today in order to deliver on the future of advice tomorrow? This is the future of advice. Hello, friends, clients, and fellow financial advisors. My name is Ron Bullis, and I'm the CEO and founder of LifeWorks Advisors. The focus of today's conversation is going to be on what I believe are two critical areas that advisors and firms have to get right if we want to win the future. Our conversation today is going to be on why it's important and necessary for advisors and firms to build diverse, talented, multi-generational teams that can serve clients well today and the clients of the future. We're going to focus in on why marketing and branding, or rather investing in telling your story and telling it in an authentic way, might be one of the keys to attracting the right talent that you'll need for your practice or for your firm. If you're a solo advisor or a new advisor that's just starting out, I think this conversation is very, very important because it's going to give you a sense of maybe what you should be thinking about growing and building your team too. If you've been in the business a while, or you're running your own firm already and you have a large team or an ensemble practice, this conversation is more relevant than ever. My guests on today's show are two people with vast experience in two very unique areas. The first guest is Megan Carpenter. She's the CEO and co-founder of FICOM, which is an award-winning agency that specializes in working with wealth management firms, independent RAAs, and financial advisors around the country to help them communicate their story, communicate their value proposition in an authentic way. She was also recently named to the Investment News 40 Under 40, and she has over 15 years of experience in helping RAAs, advisors, and firms effectively communicate their message. My second guest on today's show is Mark Tabersian. He's an industry leader with a storied background and years of effective impact leading firms, mentoring and developing advisors, and supporting the professionalization of the financial advice industry. He recently retired from his position as the CEO of Pershing Advisor Solutions, an affiliate of Pershing LLC, and a division of the Bank of New York Mellon. Welcome to the future of advice, Megan and Mark. All right, so Megan, on our, on our last podcast, as we were kind of wrapping up, I asked you a question something about, you know, take us into the future and, and, you know, kind of what do you hope the future looks like for, you know, for wealth management advisors and for firms? And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here because I think it captures the point, but you said something to the effect of that you really hope the wealth management industry starts to look like or represent more of the clients we serve. And that got us talking about kind of the lack of diversity, about, uh, you know, building next-gen talent. And then as we were winding up, we, we kind of just said, you know, and how are people ever going to know that's the story and the benefits of being a financial advisor if our industry doesn't do a better job of, of telling the story? So maybe just pick up on that thought again and, and maybe just share it with the listeners who didn't watch the last podcast um, and just why that was, you know, kind of your reflection when I asked you about what you hoped the future of advice looked like. Yeah, thanks, Ron. I guess I would start with by saying I hope I hope it's not just my reflection and, and my hope, you know, I, I think that as an industry, it's no secret that we have a good way to go as it relates to diversity. And I think that we all have to be committed to it. And so 
when I think about the future and I think about, you know, where I'd love to see this industry go, I just think we have such a tremendous opportunity to be so much more representative of the American population and how we look and act and behave within our industry. And I think that every single person in the wealth management and financial advice space has a personal responsibility to promote that. And, you know, the three of us as executives and leaders who have a voice and have a platform like this to be able to talk about it, we got to talk about it. And so, I mean, I think that that's sort of just fundamental. I think that um, it's just where we have to be as an industry and we have to be committed to it. And then I think from, if you take it a step further, and this is, this is certainly opportunistic, but I do think that there is a huge open field for those advisory firms that are committed to recruiting diverse talent and to thinking about how they show up for next-gen talent in a way that can lead the industry forward and in a way that will build better, stronger, more diverse, more representative advisory firms that will ensure that as an industry, we can continue serving the needs of the population um, in ways that I just don't candidly, I don't think are being served today. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just some some high level research, which is readily available looking at, you know, and, and this is just an example of it. Right. But the the wealth transfer to, you know, to women and the amount of wealth that, you know, women and females are expected to control in the U.S. over the next decade is, is staggering. I don't think that a male dominated industry can afford to ignore the fact that we need to build a differentiated experience. We need to be thinking about recruiting candidates that are more reflective of, you know, 54% of the population and, and, you know, one of the largest, um, you know, groups of, of wealth holders in the United States. Mark, what's your, your reflections on it? I know you were, you know, the CEO of Pershing Advisors for a long time, so you've had a unique view in the industry having, you know, been inside of a large organization, but your background is in, you know, practice management, co coaching, developing advisors and, you know, ensemble teams. What's your thoughts, you know, on this? Well, several thoughts. Uh, one is uh, I'm now in my seventh uh, career as a uh, as a permanently retired corporate executive and someone that's just doing a consulting uh, with with firms. But I've worked in a variety of industries, including in uh, radio and newspaper in my early years in Michigan. And uh, as I became more familiar with financial services, I think uh, several things occurred to me about the business. Um, one was uh, to your exact point that. Uh, it, at some point in a relationship, uh, uh, the wealth of a family will be managed mostly by women, and that tends to be about 80% of the population. We see some other facts, uh, for example, that uh, only 23% of the financial professionals in the U.S. are, are women, and only 8% are people mm -hmm. of color. Yet, uh, as, as we know by just observing the trends, is that in the not too distant future, America will be a majority minority country. Uh, and the population of the US is already 51% women. And so at some point you have to ask yourself the question, what does it take uh, to have an industry that's reflective of the population? But the, the issue probably goes much deeper than how do we recruit and retain people in the business? I think fundamentally it goes to the question of at what point do we expose our population to making the right financial choices? Uh, when financial literacy, as an example, becomes fundamental uh, to public school instruction, uh, then we get people recognizing that there's a difference. 
And I have some examples of that if you ever want to get into it uh, about how it can be transformative. But we have to recognize here that uh, this is a business that went from being product driven to planning driven uh, to experience driven. And the experience for both the clients and the people who work within the business is critical. And this really requires uh, that we change our point of view. Just like uh, we can watch in horror the, the series Mad Men and know what that was all about, uh, <laughs> our business has transformed as well. And we recognize we're not supposed to deal with people that way or even drink that much in the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, uh, you know, speaking as somebody who's not, you know, an advertising professional and, and, you know, the business owner who spends money on marketing and branding, right? I think there, you know, there was that false, you know, kind of perception around what advertising and marketing is, right? It was essentially like the spin game, the con artist, the, you know, how do you convince people to do something maybe they shouldn't do just to make money at it? Um, I would love to, and, and maybe we can circle back around to it if we have time, get a couple of the examples about, you know, financial literacy, because I don't know this to be a fact, but my guess would be that there's a significant gap too between financial literacy around different socioeconomic classes, around different, uh, you know, ethnic makeup, uh, you know, and, and across like racial lines. Um, and this is something that I completely agree with. I find it very interesting that my, you know, my teenage daughter and her friends, uh, you know, their, their ability to navigate technology is amazing. Their understanding of what goes on behind, say, like the Robinhood application or the difference between stocks and bonds or interest. I mean, I'm constantly trying to push that to my 16-year-old and I get the eye roll and the dad and, you know, this kind of thing. But uh, it's not taught anywhere. Um, even in college, it's not a prerequisite, right? And it, it kind of blows my mind. So I'm going to, uh, I want to read a quote that is from you, Mark, and then pick back up on this conversation. So a book of mine, or a book that I've read multiple times that's helped us think about how we're framing our business is by Ray Sclafani called You've Been Framed. I know you and Ray go way back, but in the intro to the book, which I always feel like I'm cheating when I read a quote from the introduction of a book, uh, but the introduction was really well uh, written. Uh, Mark, you said this, the financial services profession is going through a profound change. What has worked in the past will not work in the future. Today's economics, demographics, and regulatory environment introduce a whole new set of challenges for the business. In my experience, I find the profession divided into two camps, those who live in the past and complain about the present, and those who see the present as a catalyst for the future. I pulled that quote out because I wanted to um, you know, maybe set the stage for this conversation too as it pertains to not just attracting and recruiting talent and investing in marketing and marketing. We'll you know, get Megan's expertise on that, but just thinking about the challenges that a firm faces today, and then what are some of the things, you know, challenge-wise that a firm is going to face in the future, and how should we start building towards that, right, as opposed to just staying in the present and complaining about the client experience, or we don't have enough diversity, right? I mean, I, I see that stuff everywhere, and I think it's fine to call it out and to, you know, point out where there's a flaw, but I don't also want to just be part of the complaining group. I want to also say like, okay, what do we actually need to do from an action perspective? And so I, I want to toss that question to you first, Mark. What are some of the things that we should actually be thinking about that are action-oriented, building towards the future as opposed to kind of complaining about the present? The, the key here is to be thinking in terms of uh, each of us as missionaries and it's one soul at a time that we're trying to convert. Uh, the, the notion of... Hmm. Uh, looking at broad 
uh, societal issues is interesting, but by itself, it's hard to uh, move the needle. But individually, there are things that we can do. And so if you think, for example, within your own firm, Ron, that the, the, the idea of how you're creating a business, which you and your colleagues have clearly done, is first think strategically about uh, how do you want to be known. And if you're clear about the strategy, then you're clear about the structure. If you're clear about the structure, then you're clear about the process and the profits and the people. And all of this sort of fits into this notion. So as an example, uh, when uh, I joined Persian to help build an RA custody business, uh, it, the, the financial goal was very clear. This is a company owned by Bank of New York. Uh, it's a financial company. It's the oldest financial institution in, in America. So it has a history going back to Alexander Hamilton. But the mandate wasn't just grow revenue, grow assets, grow profits. Uh, the mandate included growing people. And so uh, being in the community we were in, in, in New York and New Jersey, uh, we managed to get to 51% women and 42% people of color, because that was part of our wow. process of thinking of uh, diversity for the sake of diversity isn't critical, but recognizing that we're in a community where there is talent uh, has to be developed. And so one of the things that I learned from that process is that the greatest indignity that uh, one person, especially a leader, that one person can commit against another is to underestimate them. And consistently in financial services, this is something that I believe we've done, either because of race or gender or education or pedigree, that there's something that has caused us to underestimate individuals. And, uh, and what we fail to recognize, uh, you know, all of us ultimately are, are descendants of immigrants, if we fail to recognize is that when people came to this country, the Italians were discriminated against, the Irish were discriminated against. Why was that? Why was it that there was a group of people that would look at this population and say, either because you're a woman or you're Irish or you're Black or you're Italian or some other ethnicity, Middle Eastern, that uh, we would tend to underestimate you or believe that you're something else. So this reversal, I'm sorry for being a little long-winded, but this reversal- No, no, that's good taken personally says, what am I doing to underestimate the people in my organization? How can individuals be a catalyst for growth? Uh, if I look at what will be uh, a dynamic change in the business, am I tapping into all the hopes and dreams and wishes and intelligence and ambition of everybody in the organization? Or am I creating divisions individually in my friendships in my client base and in my employee base. And so uh, being the missionary that you are, you almost have to take a step back and say, what can I do personally to make an incremental change? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, an awesome way to look at it. And I'm just, as you were talking, I was sitting here running some mental processes in my head, thinking about, am I, am I doing a disservice to people on my team or am I underestimating capabilities? And so I was, I was kind of running that check. You know, when Megan and I were having the conversation, Megan, I'd like you to maybe speak into this, right? I, I had referenced a stat from the TD Ameritrade FA Insight study that said the average, you know, expenditure as a percentage of revenue for a wealth management firm on marketing was 1.6%, right? <laughs> like 1.6% of total revenue is spent on marketing. And that includes like, you know, golf outings and country club events and things they kind of also tagged as like business development. And I had just reflected on this, like, how are the best and the brightest, you know, so Mark, your, your thing was about internal and I'm gonna to shift to external in a second. Like how are the best and the brightest 
you know, people, not even just college graduates, but people from, you know, diverse backgrounds, diverse skill sets, right? Even going to hear about the opportunity of, of the noble work that financial advisors get to do if we're not telling the story. Well, it relates back to what Mark started with, which is figuring out how you want your firm to be known. You know, what do you want your firm to stand for and represent in the communities that you serve? And by making a commitment to having a clear vision, having a voice and a unique point of view, and then furthering that commitment to saying, okay, I want people outside of my sphere of influence to know about that, to know about what I stand for and who I wanna be. I mean, that's just a step that everybody has to take, but it's a really significant challenge because you have younger professionals that are in college that are looking at opportunities once they graduate for careers and professions and jobs. Um, you have career changers from diverse backgrounds. And I think as an industry, we just have to ask ourselves the question, are we showing up in a way that's attractive to these people? And Mark um, is the chair of the Workforce Development Advisory Group at the CFP Board Center for Financial Planning. And he and I sit on that group together and we're actually working on a next guide that will be coming out this summer. That's a career path guide that's targeted specifically at people in college who are potentially serving this profession as well as career changers. It's gonna be a really great resource from the CFP Board Center for Financial Planning. So there's associations and organizations like that that are very committed to helping to tell that story and to taking it out into the communities. And I think that as advisors and executives in this space, we all sort of have to come together to carry that torch. There are a lot of really great associations, leaders and influencers that are committed to helping to sort of promote this change, but we need every voice in the profession. We, we need every executive at every firm to say, this is important to me, you know, from sort of the, um, how I wanna be a member of this community perspective. It's also important to me as a business owner because I believe that it will allow me to grow in ways that I'm not growing mm -hmm. otherwise and to really come together. And I think that, to, to Mark's point, which is a people point about underestimating people, um, which I can certainly validate as a woman in this industry, I feel constantly underestimated. You know, I am, I'm nobody's guy, you know, I'm nobody's um, buddy that they take golfing. And so I'm constantly having to validate, to demonstrate my expertise, to talk about my years of experience, to talk about the client served before people give me the benefit of the doubt. And I've seen where, people, peers, just that are men don't have to do that. And if you think about that's one small example. And also, I think when we think about leaders and being leaders in our own businesses, leaders tend to want to surround themselves with people that they like, with people mm -hmm. that they, you know, um, are friendly with, with people that feel similar to them. And that's just the worst way to build a business. That's the worst way to build a team. So like the underestimation point is really important to sort of think about because it's real and it happens every day. And I, I think the, uh, I think a lot of advisors also underestimate the power of branding and marketing. And it's sort of been a, an afterthought. It's to your point about the TD Ameritrade study, 1.6% of marketing, like that's embarrassingly low. I mean, that's basically nothing um, in contrast <laughs> to other industries yeah. that, that on average will spend more like 11 to 12% of top line revenue on marketing. Like we're very far off. But then there's also this, this thought of, well, I'm not going to spend on marketing if I don't know exactly what the ROI is going to be. And I haven't had any experience with marketing working for me. And it's, 
you know, if we take a step back and look at that, there's a lot of ways to sort of poke holes in sort of those misperceptions. But I think that there is a lot of underestimation that happens like across, you know, underestimating people, underestimating functions within your business, underestimating marketing, underestimating the client experience. And I think where we are today in an industry is we just have this tremendous opportunity to think differently about how we're approaching the way that we're building businesses. Yeah, Ron, if I could just jump on this. Uh, I've been yeah, a big fan of what Megan's been doing for, for a long time. And I think, uh, I think her ability to articulate in very human terms how uh, owners of advisor firms have to think about building an enterprise uh, is absolutely critical. And so one question that to me uh, always comes up when speaking to uh, practitioners in the business is uh, how do their clients describe them? Or how would they like their clients to describe them? And it's, it's a real test because you might be surprised as to how uh, you are perceived uh, because you haven't done anything to control the narrative. And so if you are a mostly white male firm, um, you may resonate with other white males, but what's the rest of the universe that you're, that you're not attacking? I think the second component of that that is so interesting is um, most advisory firms have gotten uh, tremendous growth from market lift. Uh, they haven't done it organically. In fact, you can see that from, uh, from any number of the studies that people are doing is that there's not real client growth. Uh, there may be asset growth just right. because the market has been treating them well. And so uh, ultimately you have to ask that question is, uh, how are you perceived and is this what success looks like? And what, what tells me that they haven't grown their organization is the rate of consolidation and sale. How is it that there are so many firms that cannot find internal successors in order to transfer? That, that is the most revealing element of, of any business that says mm -hmm. uh, we, have, we have built a bunch of lifestyle practices. We haven't built uh, enduring uh, businesses. And, and that big, big part of it is how they're known in the market. Yeah. I think that uh, you know something I've talked about with you know my business coach a lot in this regards and and using phrases like enduring firms uh, enterprise value uh, wasn't something that I was talked to about when I first started in, in the industry as a financial advisor. It was like go forth and sell, get bonuses, your comp goes up, right? Um, find better clients. And one of the things that I wonder, and, and either one of you guys, both of you have unique perspectives, so I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on this. There seems to be that part of this is just the historical element of how we've rewarded people in our business. We haven't rewarded people that are maybe the best planners or technicians or relationship people. Our industry has tended to kind of align the compensation around the best hunters, right? The best business development people, the best salespeople. And so it strikes me that, you know, I hear advisors all the time that are, you know, talking about succession planning and not taking any actions on it because they're kind of rewarded for, you know, let's say rape, loot, pillaging and plundering their practice um, because there isn't a value on the enterprise, right? They look at it and they're like, well, I'm making a half million a year or a million dollars a year, or I could sell my book for three million. That's kind of like, you know, so they don't get out. Um, both of you guys reflect on that. That's something I see as an advisor when I'm talking to, you know, other advisors around the country, especially uh, those that are in their 30s like me, kind of bemoaning you know, maybe they're stuck in a firm where the person's promised to, you know, make them their transition plan for the last, you know, 10 years, and it's this never-ending 10-year window. So do you guys think maybe that part of the, the dynamic here is just we're stuck in a poor way of thinking about rewarding people inside of our industry? 
Partly. Megan, shall I take it first and go yeah. from there? Okay. So um, I have about nine things to say about that because you're, <laughs> you're, you're on a, a key idea here. Uh, I think, first of all, this is probably the only profession uh, that charges based on the value the client brings rather than the value the professional brings. It would be as if my doctor charged me by the pound. I'd be overpaying every time. <laughs> and so we start from the whole premise that uh, we're, we're focused on a type of client that is going to pay us the most uh, from a revenue standpoint. And then when we get internally, uh, we do have this notion of uh, people have to work for every dollar instead of thinking about operating leverage within their business. So any other enterprise, including service businesses, are always thinking about how do I get a return on investment rather than a return on labor. And so to the extent that you're focused on the return on labor, uh, you're always going to get, you know, go for the, the biggest reward. I think the third element that's interesting here is that we are slowly evolving from a profession of professional sellers to a profession of professional buyers. And that you become, instead of a product advocate, you become a client advocate. And this naturally attracts a different type of person because uh, it doesn't mean that you don't focus on business development, but uh, that the, the goal of getting more clients uh, is not uh, the goal of the business. It is the means to an end. And so uh, if you go back to the point that Megan was making earlier about how do you want to be seen, uh, ultimately, uh, I think you want clients uh, to be describing you as someone who has profoundly impacted or profoundly transformed the way I think about my financial choices. So those are several thoughts. Now you know why I told you, Ron, immediately that Mark was the person that we had to have <laughs> join us on this podcast. I mean, Mark, I'm not even going to... Um, try to add to your expertise and knowledge around compensation and, and all these topics because it's just what you've done for so long. I think what I could speak more to is to your point, Ron, about when you joined and, and when you were a younger advisor and it was sort of like, sell as much as you can, go out and find better clients. Mm -hmm. But my question back to you is like, did you get any training on how to do that? You know, were you given any specific guidance or framework that was, that helped you to yeah. do that? Uh, I was given, um, an exercise where I had to write down all of my friends and family members and everybody, yeah, or something. Well, theirs was like 300 when I had to do it. And, and, and it fast became apparent to me. Um, thankfully, I, I, I heard somebody speak at Northwestern and I, I won't, I won't mutual, I won't mention his name. He was an amazing communicator. And he said the danger with how we think about like asking for referrals as our primary means of growing our business is it immediately makes the conversation about me, not the client. And he goes, for those that are wanting to live in the space where it's always about the client, not that asking for referrals is a bad thing, right? I think getting referrals from our best clients is great, but I always had a struggle with that. And that was really the playbook, right? If I wanted to do marketing, it was like, thou shalt not. We have a company name, right? Like, that's enough. And I was like, well, that, that doesn't help me build a community or a tribe or find people that really value the things that I can do. Um, so in my experience with talking to advisors around the country that are inside of large firms, I don't mean this in a demeaning way against large firms, but they kind of have this, this way of thinking that the mothership is the valuable brand. And I don't think most clients buy something because of the, the logo on the door. I think they buy it because of the person and because of the values that that person embodies. And so most advisors, I think, are stuck in a position of not being able to articulate their values effectively. Right. Because they're either kind of having to couch it inside of a conversation about, you know, the 30 billion dollar firm they're a part of 
right? Or they're not even allowed to share it at all. So, yeah. I, ironically, though, the the firms with the big brands uh, are creating opportunities just because of their brand. I mean, it really goes to Megan's point mm -hmm. uh, earlier is that they're spending a fair bit on marketing, uh, and of course, they can afford to, but. Uh, their, their brand is what creates opportunity. I think what's interesting as you follow the life cycle of a financial professional is ultimately they get to the point where the brand in the community is even more significant than the brand of the company they're working for. And so this mm -hmm. transformation happens through wonder and plunder and blunder. And you see these dynamics occurring within the business and you say, now I need my brand. I don't need their brand anymore. I can get rid of the crutch. Right. But it's so interesting. I mean, Mark, like Ron is a very young advisor and he still grew up in this space doing like what we would call a project 100 or something similar. So it's not like that's such an old school thing. Like right. it still happens quite a bit. And this over-reliance on referrals still happens quite a bit. And Mark, you've heard me say this a million times, but a referral is a very well-timed introduction from a raving fan. And you cannot replicate that. You cannot manufacture those scenarios yeah. where one of your clients who loves you and is happy to be an advocate for you happens to be in front of somebody who needs your exact services at that exact time. And so I am a huge believer in the power of referrals. I've grown my business primarily from referrals, but I do not have an over-reliance on them because I cannot replicate that. And I mm -hmm. think that that is where there's a huge opportunity to think, to, um, to think about how we can start to give the listeners some action items to, to think about how they can evolve the way that they approach building their business and recruiting and retaining a diverse set of next generation talent. I think it really like a great starting point point is to think about how you are training and coaching your younger advisors on how to be really great marketers in their own way and having enough confidence to not be scared of allowing them to go out and build their own personal brands to Mark's point. And I think that the, the, the generation of prospective advisors that are graduating from college and coming into this space they have really specific expectations about the business that they join. And one of those expectations is they want to work for a business that has a social and digital presence so that when they put it out on LinkedIn, when they share who they're working with on TikTok and they, they start telling stories about their day, like they want to feel like they work for a relevant brand and they want to be able to be active on social media without feeling like, they can't get their content through the compliance process fast enough or that they're just going to be handcuffed on what they can and cannot say or that they're not going to be able to use modern medium like video or podcasting. And, and so if you're thinking about like how to actually take some steps, I think a great first step is to think, okay, how are these, how is this next generation of advisors? Like how do they show up in their personal lives and how can I allow them to show up in their professional lives in a way that they're super excited about? And how can I give them the training and coaching opportunities, which is not how I got started in the business as an advisor that started 20, 30 <laughs> years ago, but how they're realistically going to get started. And to, the, to your point about, you know, they probably had you fill out the names of 300 people with their phone numbers and, and encourage you to call them. Who uses phones today? I mean, I try not to answer my phone like as actively as possible, you know, and I'm, yeah, I'm an yeah. old millennial. And so you can imagine the next generation, you know, they don't use their phones for anything but 
texting and getting on social. I mean, they don't speak to people. They don't even speak to their families. So like, why would somebody pick up the phone to talk to them? And so we have to arm and empower this next generation of advisors with better opportunities to build their own personal brands in the ways that they want to, to give them the training and coaching to be able to support that. And to like, not have this fear, you know, that, well, I can't let them do their own thing because I've got my thing over here. Like that's, that's just Mm -hmm. such an old school way of thinking. You, you said so many great things, but Agreed. probably the most shocking term you used was old millennial. Oh my God. I, I know. <laughs> it's the truth. I appreciated that you teed me up as being young, Megan, and then referenced yourself as an old millennial because I think I'm older than you or we're the same age. But I, I think one of the things that I, I've heard, and, and Mark, I want to I go back and have you give me the phrase again, because then I want to ask a question about it. You said something to the effect of like, you know, if you have the strategy right, then the structure follows. Walk me through, give me that again, because I have a question as it relates to how to empower the next gen inside of a firm to, to go out and, and, and kind of follow that same structure. Can you give that structure to me one more time? Sure, happy to do it. Uh... In, in, in one of my books, uh, Practice Made More Perfect, I identified uh, eight driving forces within uh, the typical advisor firm. One of them is the leading force and the others tend to be supportive. Uh, and so uh, as an example, uh, what's common within an advisory firm, the two most common is that either they're known for the market they serve or they're known for some technical specialty. So uh, the idea of beginning with a strategic framework for the business you're building uh, instead of relying on the 80-20 rule as an example, you change it to the 20-80 rule. You say 80% of your clients are within your sweet spot. So if you're clear on that strategy, then you become clear on your structure. As an example, mm-hmm. if uh, retirement plans uh, tend to be your market, then the structure you create is designed to support retirement plans. And the people you hire are geared towards that type of a business. So strategy, structure, people, process, profits. Uh, strategy frames the, uh, the positioning in the marketplace. The structure is creating the infrastructure, the support uh, for executing on the business. Uh, the people are matched to the type of uh, enterprise you're trying to create. The processes are really around the client experience. And all of this ultimately results in a growing profitable enterprise. Yeah. And the piece that I wanted to maybe pick up on, because it sounds, uh, I really like that framework is this idea of you know, strategy then structure, right? I mean, if a firm has a strategy of building intentionally a team that's not only going to serve clients well today, but it's going to serve our clients' clients, it's going to sell the, you know, serve the clients of tomorrow, then, I mean, the technology exists right now, too, to your point, Megan, for firms to allow advisors to use social media or to use mediums of, of, of I'll say, marketing and branding themselves as opposed to the company, right? I have this this maybe lofty vision someday that the the name LifeWorks actually fades into the background, and there's a thousand advisors on our platform that each have their own, you know, whether it's their own name or their own firm, that is their brand and their tribe and their value proposition, right? That if we can elevate the individual inside of the organization to being the person who's sharing their value at the front lines, right, with the clients. It becomes less about, you know, me having this kind of corporate top-down messaging that everybody has to follow and more about, look, I believe what we do is noble work and, um, and, and that there's a place for it in the future regardless of technology. We just have to get the firm back behind the people who are actually serving 
the clients, not the other way around, which is leading with the firm, leading with the logo, and then trying to get the people to all fit into, you know, kind of the square box that I create as the firm leader. Thoughts on that from a marketing perspective, Megan, in terms of there has to be a unifying vision at the company level, right? So that's something that I'm a huge proponent of. There has to be a set of values that I think people inside of an organization rally to. But how do you potentially think about a marketing or a branding structure that highlights this idea of wanting to have, you know, just an orchestra of different voices, let's say, telling a unique version of the company's values and story, like singing a beautiful, you know, melody together in harmony? Like, talk to us a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you make a really great point, Ron, about the need for vision and values. There is absolutely no marketing strategy in the world world that is going to fix a broken business that doesn't have a clear vision, doesn't have a set of core values, doesn't have a business strategy that supports all of that and doesn't have a leadership team that is carrying it forward. So we can identify that pretty early on when we have businesses that come to us and it's clear that the partners are not aligned or it's clear that they don't have a business structure that actually supports their vision. And so we're, we're super quick to say, let me refer you to some other people that can help help you get sort of like that on track. And then let's focus on your marketing because marketing doesn't fix broken businesses. But to your question, I think about marketing specifically and how we can empower some of these advisors to sort of expand the brand. I think it's to your earlier point about this is a relationship-based business. And so when you think about traditional advisor marketing and let's just sort of picture the homepage of a website of a traditional advisory firm, they're, they typically across the industry, they just look very similar, right? So we use a lot of the similar, um, we use very similar language and how we describe ourselves as businesses. We talk a lot about years of experience, assets under management, the, the designations that we hold. And, it, and it's, about, it's about me, 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 me. It's about me, the advisor. And that is very difficult for anybody to connect to because you're not speaking to the client and helping them understand how you solve their problems their issues, their concerns, how you're going to help them fulfill their dreams and reach their aspirations better than any other financial advisor out there. And so I think that the the first step is really to just recognize that the best way to approach your marketing is to think about how you're creating really meaningful connection. And we talked a lot about this on our last podcast um, interview together, Ron, so we can Mm -hmm. refer back to that, but it is about being really authentic you know, feeling very confident and being true to yourself and to being aligned into who you, why you do what you do and, and who you'd like to serve and the change that you're trying to create for those people. But it's really about helping, you know, making a connection across your digital properties, primarily website and then social media pages to help people understand like, this is how I will help you. And this is why you should work with me versus somebody else. And I think that The second piece of that is that we're not trying to serve, we shouldn't try to serve everybody. And that's, that's something that I get a lot of pushback from advisors that we work with on. It's like, well, I don't really want to say that because there's this whole group of people over here that I serve that might feel alienated or might feel left out. And so what happens is you end up having advisor messaging and sort of brand statements and philosophies that essentially say we do all things for all people. When you say you do all things for all people, you're actually doing nothing for no one nothing. because nobody can connect to that. And so I think mm-hmm. it's about feeling really confident and being able to have a very clear focus. And then to the, to the next point, which is really getting to your question about how can we arm sort of these brand advocates 
you know, I believe very much in having what I would call like macro messaging at the firm level. So you have to have a set of master messages that speak to what you brought up, Ron. It's your vision, your values. It's things that are really core to the leaders of the business, probably the founders of the business, why they started the business. You want to have some macro messaging that every single person in your firm aligns with. And that goes across the business. That's not just for financial advisors, but that's how you build a really great culture. So you want to have macro messaging that sort of aligns to those beliefs and your vision for the business. But then you want to allow each individual advisor to be their own person within sort of that macro vision. So at LifeWorks Advisors, you've got your vision and values. But for me, if, if I'm an advisor at LifeWorks, I am going to have a type of client, a psychographic of client that I align really well to and that I really want to serve. And that's likely not going to be the same psychographic of client, Ron, that you want to serve because we're just different people. And so allowing advisors within your firm to sort of say, okay, I believe in this, like I'm buying into the macro messaging, I'm buying into the vision. And within that, here's where I want to stand up and stand out and stand apart. And here's the type of client that I want to serve. And having you allow me to connect with those people um, in meaningful ways and to show up where they are um, and uh, sort of giving me the, the independence and the freedom to be able to do that, that's really where you're gonna find transformation and how you can build the business. And then the, the best part about it is that, you know, this is where I've seen it happen where the founding partners are like, oh my gosh, because then you're allowing the business to grow from the bottom up. And today, most firms are still growing from the top down. And so as these founding partners are getting closer to retirement, there's a real fear around, is there any value if I'm no longer here? Because there's so much pressure on them to continue to be the rainmakers. But if you are, if you can empower your advisors to support the macro vision, but to be very authentically themselves and how they show up and how they market, then you're going to start building from the bottom up. And that's exponential growth. I mean, that's where it gets really fun. Yeah, I'm just thinking of uh, I'm just thinking of the the comments and the emails and the text messages I'm going to get from advisors around the country that are going to be poking at me a little bit here, saying, "Ron, you're you're taking on and you're telling us to you know make a significant investment and commitment into two things that seem to be you know money pits, right? Like hiring people and building teams. Because I I don't even though I think the best uh, the best run wealth management firms or practices in the country are clearly high producing, high performing teams, right? I think the evidence is out on that, but we still see, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Ray Sclafani calls lone rangers, right? The independent with one or two staff people, a very top-down structure. And I guess the other side is, you know, thinking about the quote of like, you know, I, I think the quote goes something like, um, you know, half the money I spend on marketing is wasted. The problem is I just don't know what half. I, I could also hear other advisors out there right now kind of, you know, screaming at the computer, getting ready to send me a flurry of text messages saying, you know, I've tried marketing before, it doesn't work. Um, and, and aside from your old millennial comment, which I've never heard before, I'm going to tag that one and call myself an old millennial. I loved what you said about marketing doesn't fix broken businesses, right? And throwing more money at it, like even going from 1% of the PL to 20% of the PL, if, if, if the message isn't aligned with the strategy and the structure and the people, and the process. It's just doomed for failure anyway. And so I wonder if maybe part of the reason why 
advisors and firms aren't spending more here besides some of the things we've talked about is maybe they've tried it, but because they haven't thought about it from the structure of having the strategy and getting clear on who they want to serve and the value proposition and building the structure, they're kind of just, they're just saying the same thing that everybody else is saying in a sea of sameness, <laughs> right? Absolutely. This industry suffers from that, you know, homogeneity, like that's just how we've shown up. And I think, I, I actually think that we, mm-hmm. as marketing professionals, as practice management professionals, as consultants in this space, I think we've just done a disservice, honestly, with advisors, because I mean, I still see it today, like, you get people who go out and we have these opportunities to speak at conferences and to participate in podcasts and to host webinars. And, and we'll say like, you have to do social media. You have to be on Instagram. You have to be focused on SEO. And I will be honest with you. Like I used to be one of those professionals because you have a tactic, you can become an expert on it and you can take that expertise out to the market. But the problem with that is that advisors who are eager and who are listening and who they, they, you know, they care and they want to do better, they'll hear somebody like, you know, Michael Kitsis talk about why SEO is so important and they'll go and they'll invest a lot of money into SEO, or they'll hear somebody else talking about why you should start a YouTube channel and they'll go start a YouTube channel, or they'll speak to their peers who are having a lot of success using paid social on Facebook and they'll go and they'll try that. And the problem is, is like, that is the easiest way for me to describe the outcome of that is to say to a financial advisor, that would be similar to your client coming to you and saying, oh, my neighbor just invested 50% of their, you know, liquid assets into Bitcoin. So I'm going to do it too. And as the financial advisor, you're like, wait, what? No, like you need a strategy and and you you have to have a plan. And like, this needs to be coordinated and you have to be diversified. And so I think, you know, I often find that I, or I guess I wonder, I feel vulnerable about advisors listening to me and, and thinking like, well, gosh, I just wish that she would tell me what to do, you know, but the truth is I cannot the easy button. because the easy button. Yeah, that would just be me doing you as an advisor, a disservice, because I need to know about your business, your vision, your values, your strategy. I need to know about the market that you serve. I need to know about what you believe in, in order for me to give you the right recommendations. And so I think what we have to do is we can tell advisors like go out, listen, learn, be eager, have that hunger, but like, don't forget that you have to have a strategy. And the only strategy that's going to work for you is yours. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't look like anybody else's. And we have a lot of clients that we work with that we say, you know what? You don't need to be on social media. Don't get me wrong. Like I love me social media. I'm on social media a lot, but it's not for every advisor. Yeah. It's totally yeah. dependent on your business. And so I think that that's to your point about, you know, um, not knowing which half of my marketing bus- budget is wasted and what's working and what's not. I think it's because we just haven't done well by advisors and helping them figure out how to build a strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's where the coaching and I think training opportunities are, are so great. Well, I'm wondering too, and, and Mark, I was going to, one of the questions I had for you as I reached out to a few friends and, and was talking about this and, and one of them passed this question on. And he had framed it something like this. He said, you know, Ron, you're, you're stepping into a conversation, bringing two people together. One of them that has a, a deep background in, in coaching, development, building teams, has written books about, you know, enduring practices. And then another person who's got years of experience in marketing. 
right? And I said, okay, what's the question? He said, well, the question is how long does it take for either one of those things to actually start bearing fruit? So my question to you first, Mark, and I'm going to ask a similar one to you, Megan, is in your experience over, over many years, how long does it take to, you know, start from say, you know, no team to building a culture that, you know, invests in teamwork and then creates, you know, high performing, effective uh, teams? I think Megan actually used a good analogy before is that uh, in, in most respects, I think advisors almost have to look inside themselves and think about how they advise their clients. And so if, for example, you help your client to set up uh, a 401k plan and an IRA and, um, and buy protection uh, and, uh, and actually start setting aside some assets and thinking about their estate and so forth, I mean, that's not immediate fulfillment, that's a, that's a process. And the same is true is, um, is when you look from the outside in and you think about the end in mind, um, you have to be able to establish what the measurable benchmarks are. So if it's a rate of growth or rate of development or brand position or all those other elements, um, I mean, clearly it's gonna take um, three to five years to show material uh, uh, change but you can also um, measure the progress, uh, not unlike a fitness program or a diet, is that you have, you have uh, ounces of weight and, uh, and pounds of strength that you can demonstrate is changing over time. So uh, I think that the question for many advisors is whether they are happy with a lifestyle practice that is wholly dependent on them or whether they want to build a business to last. And either decision is okay, but they shouldn't confuse the two because uh, a, a business that is not naturally constructed to be transferable has no value. And so just recognize that the way in which you generate a return is an immediate income. So if I choose not to spend on marketing or building infrastructure, attracting support, uh, my income is gonna be in real immediate terms and I can choose to invest it in something else like uh, a John Deere dealership instead of a financial services business. Uh, I think that the other thing to recognize is that we are fundamentally dealing with small businesses. Uh, small businesses have a life of uh, uh, about the age of Jesus. It goes uh, about 33 years. <laughs> and uh, what we see is that uh, uh, it, they are born, uh, they grow, they mature, they pass on. The challenge with many firms is that uh, their client base tends to be the same age as them. And so when you look at the age demographics of advisors over time, uh, they're getting as tired as their clients are. And they really haven't built any repetition or continuity into the business. So I think that uh, if, if I were running a, an advisory practice today, I'd have to answer that question. Do I want to build an enduring firm or practice? Do I want to generate high income or build something with transferable value or some balance between? And uh, in knowing that in three-year increments, I'm going to be able to show material progress towards the ultimate goal. And if I, if I accelerate, then I have to have the right framework for how I make the decision. And I believe that Megan's description of how uh, people are saying, you know, this is the score. You're the trumpet player. You're the violin player. You're the pianist. Uh, you all have a different instrument to get to the same point, but it's the same score. And we have to be keeping this in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and from no, a marketing so perspective, Megan? yeah, sorry, Ron, I was just going to say from a marketing no, yeah, perspective, I think, 
Mark's point about having metrics and benchmarks is equally applicable on the marketing side. And, and I love the analogy that you use, Mark, about, you know, losing weight. You know, you're not going to lose 30 pounds overnight if that's your goal, but you'll celebrate every pound as you go. And the same is true for realizing and feeling success in your growth and then being able to demonstrate ROI is by taking the right measured incremental steps to get to the end goal. And so the way that we think about it, if you're thinking about what's the timeline to be able to sort of realize and experience that change, we actually think that you should be able to realize and experience change relatively quickly. So within a quarter or two quarters time, you should be able to start seeing some momentum. So what we try to do is in, in how we structure our marketing strategy, either for the clients that we, we do the strategy and execution for or the, or the advisors that we provide marketing, coaching and training for, is we try to figure out like what is the first actionable step that we can take that will help you reach your business goals and objectives and that we can measure there to be success around. And so it's, it's sort of like, you know, that old proverb, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a One time. Bite at a time. And, and so that's where we begin. And so if, if we determine that as your marketing strategy, one of the things that you really want to focus on is you want more of your clients to read your content because you're really excited about the content that you're producing and you're just not sure who's reading it. Like you're not sure if it's resonating. You're not sure if anyone's opening the emails. You're not sure if you're not getting any feedback. So in that, if that was sort of one of our initial goals, because perhaps the business goal that that's tied to is we want to increase wallet share from existing clients, then a very easy first step is to make sure that we're using the right tools to be able to track engagement. So it could be something very simple of switching from sending your email newsletter out on from Outlook to sending your email newsletter out from an automated marketing platform like a MailChimp. Within one quarter of time, you will be able to see the impact of that simple decision. And so that's why with marketing, it actually doesn't have to take years. It's just about setting realistic expectations, measuring what matters, focusing on that measurement, and, and having enough discipline to take one step at a time, rather than saying, I'm going to invest, let's say 9% of my top line revenue in marketing and I want to enjoy 20% revenue growth this year and and that's it and trying to do a couple things here and there for marketing and looking back at the end of the year and saying well I didn't achieve my 20% growth I can't diagnose what what worked and what didn't work so it's just about reframing your mindset setting clear expectations measuring what matters and having those incremental benchmarks so that you can see the success and then you build the momentum that will get you to your growth goals. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit here because I wanna be conscious of our time and I've got two questions left for both of you guys. Um, and this is the question I always try and end the Future of Advice podcast with because the entire purpose of this was trying to like step us out into the future and there's been so many great things that have been covered and relates to, you know, thinking about building teams and using advertising and, and, and marketing branding to do that. Mark, here's, I'm going to give you the question first, then Megan, I'm going to have you, um, you know, take us to the finish line. If you step us into the future five years or 10 years, Mark, and again, you've got a lot of experience developing, coaching, mentoring teams, right? What do you think an enduring team, right? One that creates enterprise value, 
needs to look like in order to win the future? What is the team of the future that needs to be built? I think the team of the future needs to have um, a structure, much like in an accounting firm or a law firm, uh, where you have uh, degrees of experience and capabilities where people are progressing and that you know what excellence looks like in each role. I think that uh, there are three elements that are really critical in building any organization, whether it's a team or a business. And that is you are conscious of the nature of the work, the nature of the worker and the nature of the workplace. So the nature of the work is that you're defining what the role is. And, uh, and think of it in these terms, um, uh, when you came into this business, there are certain things you did uh, that you probably didn't have a passion for, but you had to master because they were fundamentals of the business. And whoever your boss was, was defining what success looked like, hopefully. But if you're thinking about the nature of the work uh, for uh, a long-term, then you're also thinking, what's the nature of the worker that's matched to that position? Is that individual a one-ball juggler or are they a multitasker? Because the nature of the work may be very routine. Uh, so as you, you, you match people to the right job, it becomes critical. The third element around the nature of the workplace is um, I have a fundamental belief that you cannot motivate people, you can only demotivate them. And your job as a leader is to create an environment in which motivated people will flourish. And so if you've ever had a job that you absolutely hated, you understand that. It might be there's nothing you can say or do that will make me motivated to do this job well because it sucks. It's really like one of the worst jobs we've ever had. We've all been there. But if you are doing something with passion, I'm already motivated to do the work. And I have an organization that is eliminating distractions and creating opportunity for me to grow and achieve fulfillment, then uh, I am part of, a, of an enduring organization. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, fantastic answer. All right, Megan, in, in uh, wrapping us up here, take us back to and, and maybe reset the stage for those that are listening, because I, I think you and I share this, and I think Mark does as well, about the amazing opportunity that lies in the future for firms that focus on building you know, diverse teams, investing in marketing, specifically to serve you know, underserved communities and to, you know, Think about this as opposed to just, you know, trying to attract the same clients I've always attracted that, you know, golf with me at the country club or have the same hobbies that I do. Because I want to kind of wrap this segment up, and I, I hope everybody else listening has enjoyed it as much as I have, with you maybe just giving us your perspective again in terms of the amazing opportunity that lies in the future for firms that are successfully able to, you know, differentiate the service offering and their business for, for, you know, female wealth holders and for different, you know, ethnicities and people of diverse backgrounds. Take us, you know, kind of take us home with your thoughts on that opportunity. Well, one thing that I know for sure is that what has worked for us in the past is not what will work for us in the future. And so I think that the opportunity begins with believing that to be true and believing that there is exponential opportunity by approaching how advisors build their business in, in sort of new and modern ways. And I think that um, on top of that, I think there is huge opportunity for leaders within advisory firms to just sort of expand their mindset and their belief and how they're able to bring together the vision for their business with their sales strategy, with their client experience, 
and with their marketing strategy to really achieve commercial success. I don't think that that belief is widely held across the industry today. I think there are some really amazing, innovative leaders that we are seeing you know, that are becoming much more visible. I think there will be many more that will sort of grow up in this industry that will become the next Joe Durans. And, and I'm excited to sort of watch those leaders emerge, but that opportunity exists for every single advisory firm leader out there today. And so I think that it is a belief that we have to think about the evolving consumer, how their consumer expectations have changed and will continue to change every single day in ways that we cannot control. But recognizing that if we believe that we can sort of stay in front of those expectations that our businesses as financial advisors will, will achieve exponential success. And I think if I'm looking ahead five years and thinking about what I'd love to see, I would love most, of course, to see diverse a diverse workforce across the advisory community. I would also love to see leaders who believe that they can achieve greater scale um, and an exponential results because they believe in marketing in ways that they don't believe in marketing today. And then one step further, I would love in five years time to see executives at advisory firms, but also I would say across the industry of businesses that support financial advisors, really investing into new opportunities to coach and train the next generation of diverse advisors on how to be really great marketers in their own business, rather than just leaving them to themselves and hoping for the best. I think that that opportunity is just really great. I see a lot of firms that are harnessing the opportunity today. They'll be the leaders of tomorrow. But like I said, the opportunity exists for every advisory firm out there. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, well said. Uh, awesome way to wrap it up. Mark, any, any final thoughts uh, and parting as well? Or should we leave it on you know, Megan's words of wisdom? And I, I really loved how she's you know, kind of sized up the opportunity ahead of us. So I think I think she put every punctuation mark uh, that you could on the end of that sentence. So that worked. Amazing job, amazing job for an old millennial like Megan. Um, well, well, Mark and Megan, thank you guys both for taking time um, out of your schedules. Megan, again, it was awesome having you on the Future Advice podcast. Mark, um, I think I'm going to have to reach out to you and ask to have you back on and, and spend an hour or so just on practice management and structure this idea of strategy and structure. I mean, that was. Um, you know, fantastic conversation. So thank you guys both for sharing some wisdom and stepping into this conversation about, you know, building diverse teams, winning the future um, as it pertains to marketing and, and, and building those teams. Uh, so thank you guys so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us today. You're welcome. Thanks, Ron. Awesome. And for those of you guys that are listening again, I'm Ron Bullis with LifeWorks Advisors. If you'd like to learn more about Megan and her firm, FICOM Partners, you can go to FICOM Partners uh, online and you can also find her on LinkedIn. And Mark is a happily retired, although I think he said he's you know, been pulled out of retirement a few times. If you want to follow Mark, um, you can find him on LinkedIn.com by typing in his name, Mark Tiberjian, and also on Amazon.com, several of his books. I have actually picked up one of them and I'm reading it now. Um, so if you'd like to learn more about them, check them out on LinkedIn and their websites. And look forward to having you again on another podcast with the future of advice. Take care.